morning, everyone. How's it going? Good. All right. Well, welcome again to the firehouse. Thanks for uh, being troopers this morning. It is a good morning for a flesh. I thank the Skip Church. So I'm encouraged by you to make your way out here. An early Broncos game, a snowy morning. Thanks for making the trip and uh, my faith coming. Uh, we had a good week this week. Uh, a lot of you in the church pitched in, I think, and presented us as the pastors with a gift to go out to the melting pot. So we did kind of a triple date earlier this week, uh, I think Monday night. It's a little, it's a little faded out. There's a picture of us out at dinner, a little waterfall in the background, but we had a great time out there. So thank you, everyone. It blessed us to that awesome. We get the whole crew out together, and thanks for babysitting and uh, giving us the money, and that was we had a lot of fun. So thank you. We were blessed. It was. It's it's a process going there. If you haven't eaten there, it's a, like a they call it a fondue restaurant. So it's a lot of courses and dipping and cooking your own stuff. So it was it was a pretty intense process there. So it was a it was a good time. We had it was great food, and we were blessed to go. So thank you very much. Um, so we're going to rejoin a series that we started here at the Firehouse somewhere around the beginning of the year. I don't know if you all even remember we were doing this series or a part of the church when we started it. Or <laughs> but uh, we're going to jump back in Acts. As, as a trivia point, does anyone know the last time we actually taught on Acts besides Jeff? It was not quite May. We did a little better than that. It was July, I think it was like July 23rd. I believe some of us were on the road to Seattle, and Jeff was still teaching Acts, but it's been a little while, so we may need some refreshers as we jump back in and remember what we're talking about as it's been, what is that, four months or something like that, but um, thank God. We're going to, by faith, finish Acts this year, so that's kind of our goal. It's November, I know, so... We're getting near the end. What are we on? 23? There's 28 chapters, so we'll see what we can do. <laughs> I think Salt Lake tried this book, and it took about a year or two, so we're not the only ones that took a while. But well, why don't we pray, and then we'll start looking at the Word together. God, we do thank you for this morning. God, I, I agree with Jeremy's prayer in that song. God, we thank you that you do love us. God, that you had a great love for us, your people, your church. God, you took us as your bride. And God, you want to present this church as radiant and white. And we thank you that you have that heart for your people. God, uh, we pray you just speak to us this morning. God, refine us. Continue to to just clean us, God, and wash over us and, and renew us. We pray you speak to us in your word. Um, help us each be ready to hear from it. Help us each be ready to stand up for you and, and be a witness. And um, God, help us be ready to just change any attitudes in our heart that need aligning with your word this morning. Amen. All right. Well, I don't have a page number. If you want to open up the Acts, we'll uh, get back in there. Let's see. Looks like. 11.04 in the House Bible. Following along. And as it's been a couple weeks, we'll maybe review a little the end of Acts 22 and kind of get us in the context of where we're sitting. Uh, so, 
Paul has been kind of preaching and, and saying it for Christ and got into some trouble with the Jews. Uh, in Acts 22, there's a whole riot that starts breaking out and the Romans are kind of overseeing this whole, this whole, uh, the whole land. They've taken over at this point. And so the Romans um, will arrest Paul and just to, to kind of defuse the situation so that they don't let things get out of hand here with these rioting. And there, there's a Roman commander, doesn't really give his name, and he brings him back before the Jewish leaders just to try to get to the bottom of why this guy was so controversial, why he's on trial. So verse, verse 30 in Acts 22 says, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So this Roman commander is trying to kind of get to the bottom of things and bring them back before the Jews, bring them to the Sanhedrin, which is this group of uh, about 70 people, which is kind of all the religious and political leaders of the Jews, all in one big package, kind of the biggest group of the Jews. And so he brings Paul back before the Sanhedrin. And just to get context, it's kind of interesting to think about. Does anyone know the last time it was mentioned that any of the Christians went before the Sanhedrin in Acts. If you want to turn to... Well, real quick review, one more thing. If you want to turn to Acts 7, just keep your finger, but turn back a little bit. The last time it talks about the Sanhedrin... Um, it's right at the end of Acts 7. Um, is when Stephen goes before the Sanhedrin... And uh, Acts 7:59, it says, "While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." Then he fell on his knees and cried out, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So they've judged him and they stoned him to death. And chapter eight, verse one, it says, "And Saul was there, giving approval to his death." And obviously, we talked about going through. Uh, going through Acts that Saul is converted becomes a Christian he's renamed Paul and God starts putting him on a mission uh, to preach the gospel and it's interesting now that Paul comes back before the Sanhedrin there's a verse um, uh, later on in Acts I think it's Acts 26 it even suggests he might have been a part of the Sanhedrin so he comes back before the Sanhedrin a group he was probably a part of now in defense of himself, in defense of his life. So it just gives a little context now that he's standing before them. So we'll just we'll read uh, maybe the first ten verses of Acts 23 and just see where this kind of goes. But that gives a little context of, of Paul coming back before this group. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, My brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil against the ruler of your people. Then Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from there by force and bring him to the barracks. And we'll stop there. So again, Paul's coming before them in a defense of himself. They've already, it's been a while since we looked at it, but in Acts 22, they've already gotten angry at him and tried to, try to beat him up once. Um, and so he's coming before him with a defense of, of his life, of his ministry, of himself, being a believer of Christ, instead of just believing the Jewish laws, actually believing that Christ was a fulfillment of that, and that he was the Messiah. And so the first, the first verse, um, when he comes before it, I, I'm challenged by what he says to start his defense. Verse 1 says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And, and there's some back and forth that starts after this. But I'm encouraged that he has fulfilled his duty to God in good conscience. And so the point I wrote up there is that we need to have a clean and sharpened conscience before God to be greatly used as a witness. It's challenging to think that he came before his defense. It's a good example that he could say this. I come before you today in good conscience. My conscience is good before God. Conscience, we all know what it is, but if you break down the word a little bit, it means with knowledge, specifically with the knowledge of our sin. And so having a good conscience means that knowing what sin is, knowing God's laws, we're in right standing with Him. Um, and I said we need to have a, a sharpened conscience too, because being, even to be in right standing, we also need to have uh, a sensitive conscience that isn't that isn't hardened, that isn't chipped away at by little sacrifices over time. Um, I think we have a basic understanding of what's right and wrong, and over time we just slide on it. We slide and just compromise and compromise, and it takes a little more, it takes a little more, it takes a little more, and we just keep compromising. And um, we're going to look, I just wanted to take you through a few verses on this, but we're going to look that um, we need to renew our minds and we need to renew our hearts that we take off some of that shielding over our heart that we might have a fresh conscience, a sensitive conscience. Otherwise, we just become hardened over time. Um, I think of it kind of like a, a sword. I think of it like a samurai sword or something. Our conscience is meant to just slice through like a sword. It's meant to just cut us to the bone when we sin and when we've gone against it. And you know, when we, when we start disobeying, it just becomes dull over time. And it's like, it's like a prop sword all of a sudden, and you can hit it, and it doesn't do much, and you know it should cut through you, but you ignore it, you know it's not going to do anything to you. I think sometimes renewing ourselves in God's Word is like sharpening that sword back up, that our conscience is sensitive, our conscience um, is right in knowing what God's Word is. Um, hold your finger in Acts, and turn with me real quick to Psalm 119. That... Um, this is a psalm that's encouraged me a lot just to remember a few verses on 
how God's Word, I think, renews our conscience, renews uh, our understanding of what God wants from us. I'm just gonna I'm gonna read five or six verses out of here, so jump around with me. But Psalm 119, it's from page 607. And verse two said, "Blessed are those who keep His statutes, who seek Him with all their heart." So God said, "Blessed are those who keep His statutes. To keep them, you have to know them and seek Him with their heart. They don't just know them, but actually seek God with their heart and seek to obey Him." Uh, skip down to verse nine. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He hides God's word in his heart that he knows what sin is and then he'll obey God and he'll hold on to his promises. We can keep our way pure by living according to his word. Um, Verse 34 next page there. It says, Give me understanding, and I will keep your law, and obey it with all my heart. He asked that he would know God's law, that he could keep it, and do it, and obey it. Um, skip to the next page real quick, to verse uh, 104. It says, I gain understanding from your precepts from His rules, from His laws, from His promises. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. By renewing ourselves in God's Word, it teaches us to hate the wrong path. It teaches us what God loves and what God hates. God's not lukewarm on a lot of things. He either likes things or He hates them. And it teaches us to renew ourselves in that. Um, one last one in this, and we'll jump back to Acts. Uh, 127 says, Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Because he considers God's words right, he hates every wrong path. He knows what the wrong path is, and he hates it by renewing himself in God's word. So jump back jump back to Acts. Um, I was thinking of what Paul said there. It's reminded of uh, Psalms. But I was thinking, can we say this just like Paul? I've kept a good conscience even to this day. Or are we compromising our standard? Is it being chipped away at? Are we accepting things that God hates? I think it can start to happen over time. Um, I think we can start to compromise in different areas. Even things we thought at first. Are there any things you thought a year ago that you were sensitive to that you've been hardened to by this world? Is there anything from ten years ago? Is there anything from a month ago? I think we can become hardened as we forget God's Word and we ignore and don't turn from our sin in some areas. Um, I just thought, um, um, you know, one area in my life I think about is with alcohol. I've shared a little about this before, but I know that was an area for me when I became a Christian and started following Christ when I was in college. I was 18, and I had been drinking a lot before that time. And I gave up drinking. I read in God's Word that I should obey my authorities. It's pretty clear that that's illegal if you're 18 years old to be drinking. So I stopped drinking. When I became 21, it was a little less hazy, right? It's okay to drink. It's legal. I can drink. 
And so I started drinking again, and a little at a time, um, I just started to kind of go worse and worse down that road, and my conscience started to get chipped away. I knew it was wrong to be a drunkard. God doesn't like a man that gets drunk and acts like a fool. And that's exactly what I was doing. And over time, it was okay for me to have a drink. And then it was okay to have two drinks in a night. And before you knew it, it was okay to have five or six drinks in a night. And I would justify that I was doing right because I wasn't out at parties or that kind of thing, maybe in different scenarios, and I justified myself. And eventually, I just started reading in God's Word that He hates a drunkard. He says a drunkard won't even inherit the kingdom of God. They're probably not saved because they're not obeying me in doing that. And so I read that, and God kind of cut to the core, and I said, wow, I have to start obeying this. And so I I gave up drinking again altogether when I was 24, 25, somewhere in there. But I had to let God's Word start to just bring me back on His path to realize that God's not kind of lukewarm that I can compromise in that area, but He wants my heart, and He wanted me to obey I just encourage you to think about if there's any areas you need to sharpen yourself in this week so you can have that witness um, like Paul and be sensitive to God's Word. We're going to look on a little bit in Acts here. So after he says that, verse 2 says that this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to your law, or to the law. Yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And so what he's talking about, they did, um, they did break the law in doing this. Uh, I, I put the point up here that God wants us to have a heart more like Paul and less like the Pharisees. And one of the one of the things he's talking about here is that Leviticus 25 is what he's referring to. That It talks about that if you're going to see a man on trial, you have to give him a, a time to defend himself, a just witness, before you execute a judgment. And without hearing their trial, they just struck him. And so he's right in saying that, um, that they were out of line there by doing that. Um, and the problem is that you know, even him calling them a whitewashed wall, I think of that phrase, Jesus called them the same thing because they were upholding the law, they were judging people based on the law, but they themselves weren't very eager to do it. They were eager to look pretty good and to put on their robes and to judge people, but they weren't eager to do it. And even in this case, they're bringing him before it for breaking their law, breaking God's law, and yet they're breaking it in the process of judging Paul for that. Um, uh, I think there's an interesting contrast here with Paul. He also, if you look at this, is out of line in that he didn't realize, for some reason he didn't realize that the high priest was in that group at the time. Um, There's different theories on that, whether it was convened late at night or his vision was going. We read about in the letters that he wouldn't have known that. But um, he didn't realize it, and so someone called out to him and says, um, verse 4, that you dare to insult God's high priest. And it says, Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I laughed because verse 1 says, Paul says, I follow God in good conscience up until this day. The, the funny thing is that within two verses he sins. 
I'm waiting for him, I'm sure. But um, that's right that they called out against him, that he should have been honoring God's authority. Uh, there's, there's a lot of verses on that in the Old Testament and New Testament. Paul's writing and Jesus' writing that we should honor our authorities. So they were right in calling him out. But I appreciate Paul's heart. He repents right before them on the spot. Verse 5, he says, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil against the ruler of your people. He called out the scripture he hadn't obeyed. He was sensitive to God's word. And he turned from it and repented on the spot that he was wrong. And um, I was just encouraged in that to to want to have a heart more like Paul to repent when we're wrong than the Pharisees to justify ourselves when we're wrong, to put on a show, to put on our priestly robes, to put on whatever we have to look good and not be right in our heart. Um, When Jesus was before the Pharisees, he even said, you are the ones that justify yourselves in the sight of men. You'll speak and blab on about how good you are, but you're not doing it before me. But he's going to judge our heart. And I think of I think of the proverb Proverbs three it says he mocks proud, proud mockers and gives grace to the humble. And I think of this group. One of these God is going to give a lot of grace to in the future. And it might not be in this world, but I think Paul, by being humble, by being a man that was humble, being humble in this situation and, and generally being humble before God, will have grace before God. And the Sanhedrin, the Jews, were people that were being judged and widespread left by God because their heart wasn't with Him and He was moving on to the new covenant with Christ. And I think in my own life, sometimes with getting input shared with me, I've had both those hearts at times. I think about sometimes, I know when I was, an example I thought of that took me a long time of just arguing about it and justifying myself was when I was, as a young man in college, I didn't have a lot of guardrails with women and I was showing a lot of favoritism and I was causing a lot of trouble and my small group leaders Matt and Tom were kind of sharing input with me over a long amount of time and I would just argue and justify myself to the death because I was right right <laughs> and and over, I just would keep arguing and it took God a long time to do anything in my life in some ways to get a hold of me because I was so ready to argue and justify myself and it took so much time for him to work because I didn't want him working I knew I was right, and I wanted to stick on my path, and no one else knew better, and I would argue. And, and eventually in that, God started to show me there was a lot of pain I was causing people and causing myself because of some of my sin and, and things I wasn't seeing and started to work over time. Um, there's been other times in my life where I've been better about it. Um, people shared input, and I said, wow, well, thanks for sharing that. I'll try to work on it. I think you're right. And... Um, I think even with ourselves, our natural tendency is to be a lot more like the Pharisees, to justify ourselves, to try to look good and put on our robes, and not be like Paul and admit on the spot when we're wrong. But God wants us to have a heart like that if He's going to use us. All right. There's a lot more chapter left, huh? Well, we'll read on. Uh, Just one more point of the rest of the chapter, but... So verse 10, they, the commander put him back in custody and took him away. And we'll carry on in verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, 
as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, this young, oh, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it that you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Do not give in to them, because they have more than 40 of them are in waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this Going then, he, then he called two of the centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote as follows, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of the plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they went, they let the cavalry go on with them, and they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked which province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. All right. Well, there's a lot there, but we're going to just focus on, for one last little point here, we're going to focus on God speaking to Paul and just God's protection of Paul through a scheme against him. Um, The point up there just says, God protects those who boldly proclaim his name. This is an example where we see God just protecting his people in general, and I think specifically people that are bold with his name, God protects. Acts 23.11 there says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so, God gives them a little, I think a little promise, a little charge here that, Take courage, Paul. There's people after you. The Jews want to kill you. The Romans have you in custody. But take courage. I see this as kind of a promise. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Um, he's given him a sense that he's going to use him way down. Um, Rome is kind of the center of the Roman Empire, so he'd have to get 
kind of like in our courts, if you're in your little uh, district court and you have to go to county and this, all the way up to the Supreme Court, it's kind of all the way to going to Rome, that this thing's going to get escalated and you're going to be a witness to me right in the heart of the Roman Empire, which is encouraging. But he, um, I think of some of the, the charges, even Acts 1-8, at the bottom we write, to the ends of the earth. Never is from that. I think even that is kind of a promise in it. Um, when he sends them out on their mission, he says, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You'll be my witness, um, taking the gospel onto the remotest parts. And this is one of the ways that starts happening, that it, things get escalated with Paul. But, as we just read in there, um, immediately, things are not looking good. The next thing that happens here, give a the verse says, The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. So immediately after God's speaking to him, in the night, this whole group of 40 people are taking an oath that they want to kill Paul. Um, it even talks about in there somewhere that the Sanhedrin, that group he was before, conspires with them. They're all kind of in this together because more than... Um, even those guys that were supposed to be upholding God's law, they're kind of in this plot to get him out in the night and trick the Romans to be able to kill him at their command. And so there's this whole plot against him, and it's cool to see God's protection in the middle of this. Um, the next verse, century, I think it's 16, and it says, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. So God brings it about that somehow his nephew catches wind of this plot to kill him, um, who knows how he's hearing all these guys conspiring in the night, but there's not a lot of mention of the family, but it's cool that God uses a boy. He mentions that he's a young man later. I don't know his exact age, but he's a younger, younger man. Um, God uses him humbly to come save Paul and to, to bring word of things. And so he comes, and like I said, he comes and tells the commander that there's this whole scheme against him. And the commander is going to be used in the middle of this. He's really out for his own neck. The commander doesn't want this riot to break out. He learns that Paul is a Roman citizen, so he doesn't want the Jews to kill a Roman citizen. Um, and so he's out to make himself look good. He's not really wanting to defend Paul because he thinks he's a great Christian or anything like that. But God's going to use this guy, even though he's not really aligned with the believers. But God uses this guy. Um, it talks about... In verse 23, how God delivers him from this plan. It says, Then the commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at night tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so he might be taken safely to Governor Felix. So there's 40 guys hiding out in the bushes or along the road somewhere that they're going to they're gonna overpower whatever little transport is taking Paul and kill him. And so... I, I kind of laugh at this and saying this is God's little escort in the middle of that, but there's 40 guys out there waiting. And as you count these numbers up, these are Roman soldiers that are in the army, highly trained guys that this is like the greatest army in the world, at least that part of the world at the time. It says there's 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That adds up to 470 Roman soldiers are detached to get Paul safely to the next governor in Ro- in the, along the path in the Roman Empire. I, I laugh at that looking, thinking these Jews think they're going to outsmart him, they're going to outsmart God, they're going to they're get this guy. 
And, and right after encouraging Paul in the midst of this, God brings his escort of 470 Roman soldiers. It's cool to see God's heart that, you know, probably a hundred of them could have done it, but that's about half of, uh, roughly half of the total army that this guy would be commanding and have under him. He sends out with them. Um, God's our protector. I, I think especially... God tells him that he's going to be his witness. I think there's a special protection for people that are out there getting something done in the kingdom and proclaiming God's name. But God is our protector. Um, I think of one one time this uh, played out in my life of just trusting God as a protector. There was someone um, that started making accusations against me. There was some disagreement between us. and um, Like Paul, I think I'd probably... I had done some things wrong there and needed to repent of some things myself, but a lot of the accusations went, I think, maybe beyond what happened and were accusations against my character or my fitness to be a pastor or different things. And so there was a bunch of accusations coming. And I remember, um, you don't have to turn there, I think a verse I was just trusting in at the time. I just felt like I was kind of powerless. There were some things that was kind of like he said, she said, uh, you know, one word against another. And I... I just was praying to God, and I remember Psalm 31 I read, and it says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never to be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. And I was just trusting in God's promises through that time, thinking it's a situation on my own. I don't know if I can really get out of it. It was a little messy and not a fun thing to be in. I remember just praying. In the midst of that, I remember God just coming to my defense in some ways of using my co-pastors just to defend me in the face of accusations. And for me, it was just a way of God coming through on my behalf, saying, he wanted to be my defense. He wanted to be my defender to keep me on this mission. And um, I praised God in that and um, just started to learn that God is a defender of people. Like Paul, he wants to defend those who proclaim his name. I think we can go to the bank on that, that God will defend his people. He doesn't let any out of his hands that... Get snatched from him. He's control in control of the whole thing, and he's going to win this battle at the end. We can trust in him. I think of uh, I also think of Tom Short. That guy. A lot of you know him. He was on campus out here just a few weeks ago preaching. He goes out and does campus preaching. He's out there all the time, and I think a lot of times there's these whole crowds against him, and sometimes the cops are coming in to to break things up and they carry people off. Sometimes there's people fighting each other in the crowd and that kind of thing. But I think he's going to be defended by God because he's out there proclaiming. There's a lot of people praying for him. You know, I don't know if any of you have him. He gives out these bracelets just to remind people to pray for him all the time. I've seen a lot of you wearing them from time to time. But um, that's a guy I think, you know what? God, God's going to have him in his hand. That's the guy that's out there boldly proclaiming his name. And like Paul, he might not... I don't know if Tom's going to see 470 Roman soldiers roll into Ohio State campus or anything, but um, I think that's a guy that's going to be protected by God uh, because he's out there on the front lines for him. 
and he's trusting in God's reputation to come through on his promises. I'm encouraged by Paul's story here and thinking um, we can just be reminded of that. I think it's good just to think even greater than this Roman army, God has all the angels, he has all of the power in heaven and earth at his disposal when we're going out in his name. And he can use that when we pray, when we ask him for help. That's encouraging to me to think all that help is behind us in the mission we're on. Uh, it's encouraging to think God, God, there's that backing there when we're on His mission. Uh, so just keep that, keep that in mind. I think when we're afraid, when we think there's opposition, when our coworkers or classmates aren't going to like us, aren't going to like our message, when we're mocked, when we're threatened, we have a defender like that. We have a defender that will send the Roman army, will send His angels in our defense when we proclaim Him. So we can keep that in mind and, and know that there's that backing with God. That's about what I had for today. So Jeff is going to pick up in Acts 24 next week. And like I said, by faith, we're going to see if we can get this thing done by the end of the year. So let's pray and um, we'll trudge through the snow to try to get home. <laughs> God, we, we thank you for today. We do thank you that, uh, again, we are part of your bride. We thank you that, God, you've, you've taken us and you've set us on a mission for you. Um, you've set us, uh, like Paul, on that same mission to proclaim your name to the remotest parts of the earth. God, to be your witnesses. And I pray you would make us bold witnesses. God, I pray you would give us clean consciences. Help us look to your word. Uh, God, to set our standards, to set our conscience, to God, help us renew ourselves, renew our minds in it, and God, help us obey. Help us repent of things we need to change in. Help us be sharp in our actions. And God, we do pray you'd use us as a great witness, God, that you bless and multiply this church. And God, that you would be our defense in anything that comes up, God. We thank you that you are a strong God like that. Help us trust in you to come through and fight our battles. God, not trust in our own strength the strength of our horses, the strength of our, our church, or the methods we use. God, help us look to you, the living God, that who commands all of heaven's armies. And uh, we do just thank you for this morning, and, and we praise you for the chance to come together. We praise you for your son and your sacrifice this morning. Amen. Amen.